0: This is an ABC podcast. On an airfield in Suffolk, one cold October morning in 1934, a crowd of more than 60,000 people were gathering. There were women in furs and full-length gowns, their satin slippers sticking in the mud, men in coats and tails with top hats and cigars. There were farmers and food sellers, kids from neighbouring villages, along with reporters from right around the world including from the Australian Women's Weekly. All of these people had come to wave off the 20 aeroplanes competing in the Great London to Melbourne Air Race. It was a race in which the little New South Wales town of Albury would come to play an unexpected but crucial part when they staged an ingenious aircraft rescue led by the town's postman, and the manager of its local ABC radio station. This is the remarkable story that Di Websdale-Morrissey tells in her book On a Wing and a Prayer. Hi, Di. Hi, Sarah. Whose idea was this great London to Melbourne air race in the first place? Well, sir, it was the Melbourne centenary celebrations, and this was to be the centrepiece. And the mayor of Melbourne, Harold Smith, who was a rather quiet man had come up with this fabulous and and not very quiet idea. It was <laughs> it was something that nobody could have imagined uh, would come from this tiny Antipodean dot, but it entranced the world. Why um, why an air race to mark a, a city's one hundred years? It was an era where aviation fascinated people. Most people would never imagine. Being able to go up in a plane, it was really all about watching displays of aerobatics and um, and records being won, but there was no sense that uh, the public could take part, and so it had a mystique about it, I think. And even though it was the middle of the Depression, and melburnians were like all Australians, it was 33% unemployment, one could have... Um, had said, you know, this is far too much money to spend on an air race. They didn't. They got on board, and partly because a lot of them would be employed in the beautification and modernisation projects. Who did the mayor tap on the shoulder to cough up the prize money for ah, this race? Ah, Yes, <laughs> the great Macpherson Robertson. He was already a knight at that stage, having won his knighthood by his generosity in ensuring that Mawson could get down to Antarctica twice. He bankrolled Mawson, and um, he was a man who sought modernity in all he did, and he had a very, very generous heart. He'd come from poverty himself, and he wanted everyone to share in whatever was available. How how had he made his money, Doug? He made his money by making us chocolates. For so that um, alone, he should get a knife. I, I think. think he should have. <laughs> yes, the great cherry ripes and the Fredo frogs. He's behind and cherry ripes and Fredo frogs. He is. So every time you sit down and eat a cherry ripe, you're enjoying his bounty. He was a wonderful employer too. He he built social security into his his wages, and he backed the unions. Uh, and so he he had a lot of interests and um, in Melbourne, he adored. He adored Australia and Melbourne. And when the announcement was made about the centenary, he, he put forward $1,000 for every year of Melbourne's existence. So he gave the city $10,000. And then when the federal government said, right, you need to pay tax on that, he paid the $46,000 in tax as well. Philanthropists like this are few and far few between. Few and far between. So by 1934, Macpherson Robertson would have been in, in his 70s. Yes. What did he look like? Oh, he was gorgeous. He he had white parallel waves in his hair and almost always wore a white suit and carried a white walking stick and a, a, a white hat. And all the people who worked for him worked in white and all the buildings of the they called it the great white city in Fitzroy uh, they were all painted white so um, he stood out in a crowd he uh, he was suave he was suave and debonair at at a time when uh, those things really mattered so he'd uh, agreed to put up prize money for this great aviation race. In terms of the pilots who who lined up to take part, tell me about some of them. For example, the American pilot, Roscoe (laughs) Turner. What kind of impression did you make? Oh, he's my favourite. He he was a self-promoter and a very brash kind of man, but incredibly likeable. He was a great raconteur. So even in England when he first arrived, the sort of more conservative part of the establishment might not have liked him had he not been such a, a genuinely good guy. I fell in love with him because he he had a tiny lion cub for quite a while and the little lion cub would sit in the cockpit next to him. Oh he called it Gilmore so that he could get some money out of Gilmore Oil, who his oil powered his um, machine, and the little lion would sit there with a parachute on, and he'd have his parachute on so that if the plane went down the lion would be saved as well. <laughs> he used to be a lion tamer. He was a, a lion tamer. So he in he was, was not to love about a man <laughs> who was once... In case he... His co-pilot went rogue. He was ready to handle it. <laughs> and he did have a fabulous moustache. I mean, this this was an era of great fashion he among pilots. Did. Oh, yes. Um, and, you know, the, it was waxed at the end. And he always had this fabulous sort of slight tilt of the head and great white smile. I, I had some photos of him out on my desk one day, and I was looking and comparing them, and he had exactly the same look in every one. <laughs> and my partner walked in and said, you're looking at pictures of that bloke again. Should I be worried? <laughs> what about Australians, though? What Australians were taking part in the Great Race? There were three three teams probably the the most prominent would have been James Melrose. Um, Jimmy came from a wealthy family and uh, was flying in a plane that his mother bought him uh, <laughs> yes. and he was still young I mean I guess he a lot of was these pilots were only he? just turned twenty one yes, a lot of them of course um, were a lot older because it took them that long to either amass the money to buy a plane or they had to have the experience to put out there for owners to let them fly their planes. And this was the heyday of Charles Kingsford Smith. Was he it taking was. part? No, no. Um, he had wanted to and he was registered to do so, but he he. there were two problems. Firstly, he named his plane that he'd bought in America Anzac. And you're not allowed to call a plane Anzac. You're not allowed to call anything but biscuits apparently, <laughs> and Zach. So while he was madly trying to re-register that as um, Miss Southern Cross, he actually crashed the plane and damaged it too much to be able to continue. Is it true that the Australian Women's Weekly tried to enter the They plane? did. They did. I don't know. <laughs> I suspect that they would have had male pilots because women at the time were not seen really as pilot material. Were there any women flying in the race? Yes, yes. The great Amy Johnson, um, she flew with her husband, Jim Mollison, and she was an extremely well-credentialed pilot, as was he, and they flew as a team. The other woman was Jacqueline Cochran, she was an American woman who'd started life in abject poverty and as a, a completely different name, Bessie Pittman, and she decided at some point that Bessie Pittman and that life were no longer serving her well and she became a pilot and uh, changed her name to Jacqueline Cochran. She was flying a plane her husband bought her, yes. He was an incredibly wealthy man. What was distinctive about the Dutch entry, Di? Oh, uh, the Dutch take my breath away. They were the epitome of professionalism. There was not a hair out of place, not um, a button that wasn't shining on their uniforms. And they had been entered in the race in a commercial Airliner, whereas some had the there were biplanes and monoplanes and tiny little things, some of them were a bit bigger, and this one was the biggest of all. There were four crew and they carried three passengers, and the plane was um air-conditioned and uh, they had hat racks and God knows what else. <laughs> so they were doing it almost more like a, the way that we'd think about a, an international flight today, it sounds like. Yes, and in fact they, they wanted to prove their commercial viability and so they didn't just stop at the compulsory stops. There were five compulsory stops. They stopped 17 times and detoured to prove to the world that they could fly a very impressive time and still fly a commercial route, who was yes. seen as the the most likely winners at the start of the race? Probably the Englishmen, Charles Scott and Thomas Campbell Black, they were flying in a purpose-built comet, a beautiful scarlet thing, and um, they had they had the runs on the board. Scott had actually flown to Australia twice before and had actually flown within Australia with Qantas. And so I think they probably had the edge over the the rest of the field, but it was still fairly open. He'd had a, a pretty rough or an up-and-down career, Charles Scott. He was selling rat traps at one point. <laughs> yes. He was flying towards Melbourne, which is a city where when things didn't go well with Qantas, he ended up selling rat traps. and. It must have been quite surreal to be in this glorious race flying towards a city where he'd been, you know, the seller of rat traps. It seems bizarre. You say they're they're playing the Grosvenor House. Yes. They were flying a, a Scarlet Comet. How new to the market were, were these British-made comets? These were so new. They had been built especially for the race. There were three. Uh, one was black, there was green, and there was Scarlet, and the teams had only actually taken delivery of them within a week or two oh of the goodness. race. So they they knew none of its idiosyncrasies. Uh, they were all slightly different according to what the teams requested, but they all had little niggling problems. And so each time they tried to familiarise themselves with the planes, something would happen and it would go back and have to be fixed again. So it was a very difficult time for for those three teams because they just didn't know their planes well enough. So as the, the pilots in their planes start arriving at um, the the airfield in Suffolk ready for, for the starting line, tens of thousands of people yes. gather around to watch this, yes. including royalty. How, how yes. did that happen? <laughs> the royals had been at at the uh, races at Newmarket, and um, they'd been, they'd had a day out, and I don't know whether they just said, "Oh look, you know, there appear oh, to be wait. some planes over there. Can we, can we have a look?" Um, or whether it it had actually been scheduled, but they stopped, and the king loathed planes and anything to do with them, and possibly the queen. Asked to stop just to irritate the king, I don't know. Um, but the three of them, the um, the Prince of Wales was with them, and they all went around and shook everyone's hands and looked at the planes. And um, you know, my man Roscoe said hello, King, and everyone <laughs> fell about laughing. Um, and uh, it was it was really very pleasant because. Uh, the, the royalty was looking at them with just as much interest as they were looking at the royalty. What about the logistics? I mean, what state was the runway in where this race was going oh, to begin? When the, when they first arrived, there was a big hole in the runway. It was a yet-to-be-commissioned Air Force field. Nobody had actually looked at it. Properly, I mean, there wasn't even a windsock because the Air Force had taken it away in case it was damaged. What? So, what the did earth. they use? Surely <laughs> they need a windsock. Originally, they they hoisted a potato sack <laughs> up the up the pole, but then you know they thought, well, that's insane, so they put up a pillow, two pillow slips, <laughs>
1: <laughs> tied much more together. official.
0: <laughs> And in terms of just crowd control, when it came for for the planes to take off early in the morning, how did they keep a handle on all those people? Well, they didn't. Um, 60,000 people wanted to be near those planes (laughs) with a very small number of... I think there were police, but they'd also ask cadets from the local college and various other people to come and help. So as soon as the planes arrived... There was a surge forward, and there was just no way to stop them. They were banging on the the wings, and that would have potentially been dangerous for was, those yes, little planes. Absolutely, they could have damaged you know delicate machinery, etc. And so it was only when police sirens and um, fire engine sirens came barreling at them down the uh, down the strip that they actually fell back but 5000 they still couldn't get back and they stood right next to the strip there was nothing no barrier nothing stopping them for the plane from running into these people or from them running out into the into the middle of the street but it was it was chaos it really was and these are the early days of motor cars too so I imagine there was there was traffic that wasn't common in that part of England no it's said that the first major traffic jam was at Milden Hall where this occurred because everyone <laughs> drove their car down and so for miles around there were it was like a car park <laughs> it was gridlock <laughs> The first stop, the, the first port of call was Baghdad. Who was in the lead then? The Mollisons, Amy Johnson and her husband Jim. They were in the lead and had broken all records getting there. They were very pleased. And what about the Australians die? How were they going in the first day or so of the competition? Oh, Jimmy Melrose, the young guy, was entered in the handicap part of the race. So he could afford to just take his time it was only time in the air that was counted so he was stopping and and he was taking uh, he was still you know way back in europe the para and hemsworth had almost come to grief over the uh, english channel and had come down in france and had had some pretty trying hours and were now stuck in france because they discovered that their their fuel was contaminated by an unknown yellow goo, and um, they weren't going anywhere for quite a number of days. How was the the world following what was happening with the race? Yeah, well, by radio, uh, people people all over the world were so fascinated. In fact, you mentioned Baghdad when people in the Middle East realised that there was. Apparently, a large number of planes heading their way they had they, they thought that it was they were all coming from England, so they were probably on their way to India to put down some insurgency or something. when they found out it was, it was a race, people jumped on horses from all over the Middle East and rode at breakneck speed night and day to get to some area near the 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 Baghdad airport, to be able to watch them all come in. And so Bedouins, all sorts of people arrived. What was going on in Australia House in London? They had an entire room, the floor of which was set up as a race map. So each time they found out where a plane was, they'd move it along the floor to see where it was, in relation to everyone else. And, of course, they were probably barracking for the Australians, but by then they were a fair way behind. So Amy and and Jim Mollison, his husband and wife Mm -hmm. team, take an early lead. What happens to them next? They made a peculiar decision. They had a big enough fuel tank for enough fuel to take them directly to the next compulsory stop, which was a But they decided to go via Karachi and... In Karachi, there were a series of errors. Firstly, they got, they got up in the plane, they were up in the sky and realised they'd left the maps behind. Oh, so they no. had to go back for maps. That's going to be a husband and wife argument. Oh, isn't who it? Who said yes. they were going to pack yeah. the maps. It was your job. You had one job, the you maps. You should have put the bins out. <laughs> right. And uh, eventually, anyway, they I, I think they make two attempts and they come back the second time and they find that they're fogged in and so they can't go anywhere for hours. And, of course, that puts them out of the lead. Oh, no, really mm. from their own, their own set yes. of decisions yes. at that point. Yes. Were they financially invested themselves in this race? It must have been costing they a had, huge amount. They'd, they'd invested virtually every penny they had in this plane and winning the race and so... It was critical that they do well, and um, at this stage, they weren't. <laughs> On day three, the news broke that there had been a fatal crash. What happened? Yes, there were two New Zealand men flying a very, very old plane. It was exactly the same plane as Hemsworth and Para, and neither plane really should have been in the race. And these young men had had problems with their engine right through the first two days and on the third day they had problems getting out of Rome airport and the next time they were sighted was um, over farmland in Italy when a farmer looked up from the field he was working in and saw a plane just dropping from the the clouds and it, it was dropping horizontally there was, there was no attempt to, to get it anywhere. It, the engines had cut out and these men knew they were going to die. They could see a landing strip so close but they couldn't make it and they just f- fell to the ground and were incinerated along with the plane. And one of those pilots, James Baines, I think he was the third son in his was, family to die. Yes, another son had died in a plane crash. And a third had died from something described as a gun accident. I don't know what that was, but um, how those poor people took the news that their third son had been lost to them, um, I can't even begin to imagine. And the world would have known of this as it was happening. Yes. I mean, the race was being followed so closely by each of the countries and their air departments and so they would have been very quick to the scene. They would have had to have identified them through the the plane, I guess, but the plane was incinerated too. So it might have just taken a little while to work out who had actually died. But once they did, of course, um, the news came back to Australia and the news went along the pipeline of, of pilots that were flying in and out of the points along the races, and it was very distressing for everyone. And I guess a reminder that in this era, flying still was an incredibly dangerous, incredibly hazardous. Occupation. It was only you know two decades since the first heavier-than-air plane had had made a you know ten-second flash or something. Technology was still being developed, and, and aerodynamics was still being understood. And this plane wasn't a terribly old plane but the amount of technological advance in the sort of seven years since it had been built was enormous. It's like um, us with, with phones now, I suppose. Exactly. <laughs> just yeah. superseded yes. every year. Yes. If uh, after Amy and Jim Mollison fell into problems when they forgot their maps and were then, mm. were then fogged in, who had taken the lead from them? Uh, that was Scott and Campbell Black. They... Uh, they were incredibly professional. They decided they wouldn't go via Karachi. And to be fair to the Mollisons, a lot of the leaders did go via Karachi. I'm not quite sure why. It was the tail end of the monsoonal season. Perhaps they were trying to get around a, a storm cell or something. But by going directly to al Scott and, and Campbell Black almost had an unassailable lead. And their next stop after Alalabad was Singapore. Yes. What would have conditions been like in their Scarlet Comet as they were flying into Singapore? Unimaginably hideous, I imagine. The cockpit canopy was only an inch or so on either side of their shoulders and only an inch above their heads. And they were still wearing the very thick clothing they had worn in England and over Europe, which would have been great in those climates, but here they were over the tropics and they'd been flying over the tropics for quite some while and they were exhausted and and hot and the perspiration wasn't being allowed air. For some reason, Scott had elected to wear carpet slippers for the entire... (laughs) entire trip. And his feet were probably feeling most un- unhappy at the time. Um, some so, things were out of their hands, but the yeah. choice to wear carpet slippers really is <laughs> <easy. It's> questionable. <laughs> yes. So by the time they reached Singapore, they were exhausted men. Well, they then had to go on from from Singapore to Darwin. And what was tough about that leg? What were pilots scared about in that
1: part of the race? Pilots were
0: terrified of the Timor Sea. It was said that the thing was seething with sharks waiting for pilots. And um, so they, uh, Scott particularly had uh, an aversion to flying over the Timor Sea, but it was the only way to get from um, Singapore to Australia and it was the longest sea route that they would fly throughout the race. And it turned out that he was fairly right to be concerned because things went wrong. You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app, or go to abc.net.au/slash Conversations. Dai, you were explaining how Thomas Campbell Black and Charles Scott were out in front on this race flying their Scarlet Comet, the yes. House, across the sea, seething with sharks, <laughs> which is a description I never want to hear about, about a sea that I'm flying over, when things start going wrong with their plane. Yes. So what happened? They had actually come down fairly low above the sea, and this is a major problem. It puts much more pressure on the engines. And one of the engines just cut out. They went up to altitude and it righted itself. But then the other one, they lost the other one and that didn't come back. And so these men were flying. By now it was is getting dark. They're flying over a sea they're terrified of. They've got one engine and... They put on their safety harnesses. They, they were prepared to ditch. and Ditch um, into that sea? Into that sea, yes. They said they just sat back and waited to see how it would play out. As it turned out, they got as far as Macquarie Island and they realised that if they stayed with the line of islands... They had their best chance if the plane did sort of conk out, as they used to say, they would possibly make it to an island rather than ditch in the sea. So that was slightly longer than going direct to Darwin, but they opted to do that. Finally saw the lights of Darwin ahead of them. What a relief Made that it. must have been. What, what kind of welcome did they get in oh. Darwin? Darwin went mad. The police that had been trying to hold everyone back, it was like Mildenhall all over again, they had no chance. Everyone ran. They started to sing good old Scotty and for they are jolly good fellows. So people and, had gathered at the airfield at, oh, at yes, Darwin. Oh, yes, many, many, many people. And they all rushed the plane and they were trying to shake the pilots' hands as they were getting out and they were banging on the sides of the plane. And this plane had barely held itself together. And over. the men too would have been in of, post-traumatic. or they were. They just survived a near-death experience. Yes, and Scott had been having terrible leg cramps, and he really just needed a bit of tender loving care. And they loved him. There was no doubt about that, but they were loving him a little too boisterously. <laughs> Did they manage to get mechanical help for their plane in Darwin? Yes, it took them quite a while and all the time the the planes behind them were catching up. And so they really felt the race was over for them until Qantas had supplied uh, one of their engineers and he came up with a fix and they got on their way. And after their comet flew off... What happened with the crowd at the Darwin Aerodrome? Well, look, most of them stayed because they wanted to see the show. You know? was it was going to do in October in Darwin in 1934? <laughs> I'll stay. Yes. Yeah. The, the dry had just broken <laughs> and so they were probably being rained on as well. But, you know, what a great show. We're all here. So they all were camping out at the Aerodrome waiting for the next mm. plane to arrive. Who woke them up at 3 a.m. or so? Oh. <gasps> Oh, yes. Dr. Fenton, a local doctor who who was sort of the original flying doctor. He flew the plane and went to the people who were sick. And but he, he, was, was, he wasn't in the race. No, no, no. <laughs> he was—he wanted to practice his night landings and chose that night to do it. He, and must, so, he must have known there was a well, massive crowd of people so. at the aerodrome. Maybe it was a bit of advertisements or something, I don't know. <laughs> but he arrived and, of course, everyone jumped up. Here's an explain. plane. And when they realised it wasn't an next plane, they were a bit grumpy about it and then sort of grumpily went back to sleep. <laughs> mm. <laughs> For when. Did a, a plane that was actually part of the Great Air Race arrive? It, it wasn't until eight or nine in the morning, and it was the Dutch team who had been stopping so many times, but stopping with such precision and flying with such precision that they were still second. What would have that plane, the Ivor, looked like up in the sky? Oh, look! It was it was an all aluminium plane, which was a most unusual thing in those days. And you can imagine the Darwin sun glinting off this beautiful... It was called the Iver, which means crane in in Dutch, the the bird, crane. And it would have looked like a beautiful silver bird just swooping in, quite magical. How much interest was there in the Netherlands in the progress of of the Dutch plane? Well... The Dutch were said to have gone completely mad. (laughs) They were staying up all night. Shop windows were set up with pictures of the maps and they had them illuminated and where the planes were and they were so deeply invested in it. So after Darwin, the next stop was Charleville, the next regulated stop Why Charleville on this route. Yes, a lot of people asked that, but it was decided that... They needed another stop between Darwin and Melbourne because this was a time in the race where everyone was tired. If any problems were going to happen, they would probably happen in that stretch. So to to cut that in half and make Charleville the the final compulsory stop, it meant that there was less chance of fatigued men and planes. And I suppose even more so back in the 1930s, that central part of Australia didn't have cities or towns no, or habitation if, right. if a plane did run into and trouble. Overnight, of course, it's featureless. It's just black. There was nothing to to guide them in any way. At Darwin, they were given a roadmap to follow. How useful A roadmap road map is overnight. Couldn't say. <laughs> well, the Ivor did manage to make it to Charleville. Yes. And it then set off to Melbourne, yes. but it ran into to a storm. What did that mean for flying conditions? Well, the flying conditions were appalling. The huge cumulonimbus clouds crowded in on them and they had no sight of where they were. It was an electrical storm, so they had no compass. They couldn't see the stars for even, you know, the very basic navigation. And so they, they got lost in this storm Could it be in contact with race officials No, no, the radio wasn't working either. They were just getting static on the radio and they were putting out SOSs to find out where they were or get some help, but no one was hearing them either. So they came down below the cloud to see where they were and discovered that they were actually flying in the middle of the Australian Alps and flying in the valleys heading towards the hills, uh, the, the the mountains. And so they had to quickly pull back and go back up, get above the cloud. And of course, now they're getting ice on their wings and an icing incident can change the aerodynamics completely and bring the plane down. So they had to choose between flying somewhere where the yes. ice made it very dangerous or flying where they may just knock into a mountain, into a mountain or fly in the cloud where... They had no idea of, of what they were going to fly into. So. Did race officials and and I guess family and and colleagues back home in the Netherlands know that the Iva had, uh, yes, had gone off because track? it it should have been in Melbourne by now, and it wasn't. And so um, they did start to say, if anyone hears a plane uh, along the the general route of the race, it had to be the Iva. No other plane had gone up that night. Who heard then amid the uh, rain and the, the wind, the sounds ABC of ABC man, <laughs> Arthur Newnham from the ABC in Albury, heard the drone of it overhead and he knew what he was hearing and he ran outside with his son and at the same time his next-door neighbour was running outside and they jumped in the car and raced down to the uh, Albury proper and um as they went they they concocted a plan which now seems almost impossible but off they went and uh, Newnham jumped out at the radio station which was also the telephone exchange and post office in those days and and he went in there and started calling out to anyone in Albury who had a, a vehicle of any sort, to go to the race course. And he outlined the plan. What was the plan? The plan was that they would bring as many cars or trucks to the race course and set them up on either side of the straight facing inwards so that when they turned on their lights, it would look like a landing strip. So he took over the 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 radio to announce. Yes. Did he have authorization? No, no, no. It was actually on relay from Melbourne via Coriong and he just cut into it. Um <laughs> Inviting instant dismissal, <laughs> but um, obviously there were planes and a plane and, and a lot of lives involved. And encouraging all of his the fellow citizens, residents yes. of Albury, to, to take mm. their vehicles and to the And said course. That by the time he'd explained it, there were already cars that he could hear racing past on their way to the race course. What about the guy at the race course? Did he expect this <laughs> great cavalcade of cars no, to turn up? No, Peacock was sound asleep and suddenly there were all these people bipping their horns <laughs> with their lights on and Arthur had forgotten to tell him that they, <laughs> part of the plan involved him opening the gates. So out in his dressing gown, he went and marshaled the, the uh, cars on either side and um, then it fell to Jim Dowling who had picked up Reg Turner, the postman, and the city electrical engineer, and they went to the substation in Kewa Street, Albury, and the engineer opened up for them and they waited and they until they heard the plane again, the drone of the plane, which was now sort of flying almost in circles. And when they heard the plane, they flicked the switch and turned all the lights of Albury off and then on again and then off again. What's that? What are they doing that for? They were signaling the plane. Look, you know, we're here. There's someone down here. There's someone down here. We know what's going on with you. And so they pulsed these lights for a little while and the crew of the Ivor looked down and thought, well, that can't be a coincidence. We, we don't know what they're doing, but we'll stick around and see. And then Reg Turner, the postman, yes, starts signalling. W- what did he do? Well, Reg had been in signals during the First World War and he knew Morse code. So instead of using the little tapping machine, I don't know what they're called, he used the lights. So he spelt out the letters of Albury by actually turning the lights of Albury on and off oh in either short dashes or long. And so he was actually spelling Albury. He did it twice. Unfortunately, the ivor was being bumped around and buffeted in, in the, the winds and they could only see some letters. They weren't still weren't sure where they were. But then all the lights went off again. They're engineer turned all the lights off and with that signal Bert Peacock and in his dressing gown told everybody at the race course to turn on their lights and suddenly there below the Ivor looks down and there's a landing strip and they could see that it was not a purpose-built landing strip and when they went down lower they could see that it was a race course. They could also see that there were, were hills at either end and that was going to be a problem because they had to come in at the right angle for landing. If they came in too steep, steeply, they would crash. So they dropped some flares and discovered that there was just a tiny break in the hills and that was enough to get the plane through at the right angle for landing. And so... They didn't know whether they'd be able to stop it in time. It was a big, heavy plane and only a short landing strip. But they thought this is the only safe haven we're going to get tonight. What kind of landing did it make then? It was a beautiful landing. Fortunately, the the storm finally worked in their favour because the ground had turned to a sodden, muddy mess and it gripped the wheels and stopped them before they could bump into the, the hill at the other end. It said... That before the propellers stopped turning, the world knew that they were safe. Well, how was this being reported? Because we had Bert Peacock's wife was on the phone <laughs> to to the postmaster, and. Then he yelled across the room <laughs> to, Arthur. to Arthur, who told <laughs> Mr. Breyer in Coriong, who then um, told Melbourne, and Melbourne told the world. And, so um, in, in like real time, this yes, extraordinary yes, event is yes, being yes. broadcast to the world. Yes. But the most remarkable thing for me is when that, when that plane came to a stop, it had only been 22 minutes since Arthur Newman put out his call. And every time I think of that, it, it gives me goosebumps because I think they achieved this extraordinary thing and did it in such a short time because that's all the time they had. And the, the kind of ingenuity of using the, the city lights to signal and, and using the race course with the cars. Yes. I mean, all of these are brilliant I, yes. solutions. And they they had minutes to come up with the plan and then 22 minutes to carry it out. I hope Arthur was then given like a gold key to the ABC office or something after that. Surely he didn't get into trouble. I don't think he got into trouble. He did receive a number of um, proposals of marriage (laughs) from um, the Dutch East Indies and a large case of tea. Um, So, you know, he he went... didn't go unrewarded. <laughs> you probably had to sp- <laughs> fill out a special oh form from, from the ABC after that, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> but while all these incredible dramas happening with the Ivor in Albury, what was happening with the leaders of the race, the, the Grosvenor House place. Yes, Grosvenor House had actually flown through the uh, pylons uh, that marked the end of the race as the Ivor was leaving Charleville. So it had already been one, and one of the first things that um, Parmentier, the the pilot of the Dutch plane, did, he went to the post office and he he told his boss that they were safe. He sent messages to this his, is in Albury. Yes, to his crew's families. And he sent a telegram of congratulations to the winners. Uh, these are men of men of quality. Men of quality. How long had it taken the two winning British pilots to make this this air race from London to Melbourne? Just under seventy two hours. It was it was an astonishing record. Once they had arrived in Melbourne after those seventy two hours or so, I mean they must have been just physically and, and emotionally spent. They had to go on, get all their congratulations and yes. the wreaths and the, and the handshakes. Yes. Was Charles Scott still wearing his, his carpet slippers? Yes, he still was. There's a, there's a photo of him and it, uh, he's still wearing this incredibly bulky-looking raincoat, which was okay, because in Melbourne at the time it was raining, so <laughs> that was okay. I still can't see the, the appropriateness of the carpet slippers, especially as it was raining. But... So so the race officially has been won yes. by, by these two yes. in Grosvenor House, and sun has risen in, in Albury yes. over the race course yes. with the Ivor stuck in mud. Was it, it, not... was it fit to be able to... Well, no one was quite sure whether it had been damaged, but certainly it was stuck in mud. And so they, again, enormous number of people came to the Albury race course, tied ropes to the plane, and 40 or 60 men got on either side and pulled two ropes and pulled it out of the mud just by sheer brute strength. (laughs) and um, got it on its way again, and it was fine. Did they have any more connections with Albury on on that visit to Australia? Oh, absolutely. After thanking Albury enormously, on their way home, they dropped a flag and a letter of thanks. And that relationship hasn't dimmed at all over the 85 years the connection with Albury... And Holland is quite extraordinary, and in fact, many people emigrated after the after the race from the Netherlands to Albury, not to Australia they weren't <laughs> coming to Australia, they were coming to Albury. yes, they still have a lovely relationship so the House finishes the race. The Dutch Ivor finishes the mm-hmm. race. What about some of those other planes, Di? What about Roscoe Turner, your fellow? Did he yes. make it to Melbourne? Oh, yes. He came third and he jumped out of the plane, produced a toy lion from somewhere, wound it up, and it jumped and snarled at the race officials. And he said, we mightn't have won, but we had a lot of fun. <laughs> What about the the only Australian who was left in the race at that stage, Jimmy Melrose, the young pilot? Yes, he came second in the handicap race. The Ivor was given the choice. You can either come second in the speed race or first in the um, handicap. And they decided first sounded a lot better than second. And... Jimmy came in second, so Australia was very happy we had a place getter. There were still yes. those Australians, the battlers who plane had oh. taken a, a slow detour through yes. Europe. Where were they in their journey as all the other planes are, are landing um, in Melbourne? Well they were probably still in, in um in France, but their their race is probably the best of all because they were arrested twice, almost ran into the conning tower of a submarine, which then tried to shoot them. <laughs> they were detained in Persia. They almost died in the swamps of Malaysia. And then their carburetor was attacked by monkeys. I mean <laughs> Any race that includes a monkey invasion (laughs) is a race worth running. Though they came across a very disturbing sight in the length of their journey. They came across a crashed plane. They did. And it was the Ivor. The Ivor had gone back to um, great celebration in Amsterdam. So it had got safely back to Europe. Yes, yes. And. Then it just went straight back into its normal run as a commercial as a commercial airplane. flight, and it was making a a flight in the middle East and um, came down in a storm and everyone was killed. None of the people on the plane during the race were in the plane at the time, but it seemed such an ignominious end to such a violent end to such a courageous <laughs> Plane, uh, Survived all yes, but but yes. not the Middle East, Very and it is incredible that, in terms of the whole planet, that those Australian yes. pilots should have come across its crash. I know, on their way to, to their finish way. the race. Did yes. they finally make it? To yes, remember? they did. Not Was not anyone in the same still year left? Year at as anyone else? <laughs> not in the same year. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, I think the last person to come in. The, it started on the twentieth of October, and I think the last. Well, the second last plane to finish was early December and they came in mid-February. Did they still get like a trophy or a yes, gold McRobinson medallion? Yes, was such a gracious man. They weren't entitled to a, a, a medal, but he sent for them and brought them to his office and presented them with their medallions, solid gold, and said, we hope it brings you luck. And, and hopefully f- a giant Cherry Ripe and Freddo Frog oh, each. Oh, yeah, well, that would mean more. <laughs> Many of these pilots uh, die, you know, they didn't live long, even those who managed no. to successfully end this race, mm. complete this race, because it was an era of still such risk in flying. It was. Tell me what happened with Jimmy Melrose, the young Australian. He he started his own aviation company and on one occasion um, a man wanted him to fly him from Essendon up to Darwin And they saw a little bit of blue, just a tiny patch of blue in the otherwise very ominous clouds. And Jimmy said, I can aim at that. And uh, it closed up while they were in the air and the, the plane broke apart. And he was just, what, early 20s still? Yeah, he was only about 22. And what about Amy Mollison, part of that husband and wife team, which started off as the leaders but then fell um, back? She had probably by then returned to being Amy Johnson because the marriage didn't really survive the traumas that they went through. And she was flying during the Second World War, ferrying, Planes from the point of manufacture to airfields. She was coming along the Thames one day in very poor visibility and realised that she wasn't going to make it. She jumped out of the plane and she was never seen again. What about the winner's die, Tom Campbell Black and Charles Scott? What did fate have in store for them? Yeah, very, very tragic. Um, Campbell Black married the sweetheart he'd proposed to before the race and they were very happy and he was preparing for another race when he was sitting on the tarmac in Liverpool and a large RAF plane came through and its propeller sliced through the cockpit and killed Campbell Black. And that was less than two years after the race. And then his partner, Scott, who was a bit of a rogue and always... Couple of had, marriages. Uh, yeah, yeah, and lots of extramarital <laughs> things. Had, I think partly it was that this sort of... Scarf and goggles set being the the stars of the day had stopped after the Second World War because now flying wasn't such a big deal and in the midst of feeling the loss of, of that, his new love interest said that she wouldn't leave her husband even if he left his wife and so he wrote her a note and took a gun, put it to his chest and ended his life there alone. And so the two men who were so fated and lauded, had come to such tragic ends. What about Roscoe Turner, the lion tamer? Roscoe lived a long, happy and fruitful life. And I've seen a photo of him with Gilmore as a a huge lion (laughs) sitting in the lounge next to he and his wife and children. I think by then Gilmore was actually a taxidermied Gilmore. (laughs) (laughs) And in fact, Gilmore himself lives in um, the Smithsonian, um, a bit malty, but... <laughs> Di, it's an incredible history that you've told us about today. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversation. it a joy. Thank you, Sarah. Di Websdale morrissey and Di's book on the Melbourne air race is On a Wing and a Prayer. I'm Sarah Kanoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.